Welcome to Our Job to be Done, the podcast where we're facing the challenges we have both in our society as well as in business and where we're meeting with experts and sharing our experience and where we're hacking these challenges in order to give ideas how to solve such. My name is Johannes C. I'm an innovation consultant and author and today I'm at the Global Drucker Forum in Vienna together with Amy and Amy please quickly introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, hello, Johannes. I'm Amy Webb. I'm a quantitative futurist, uh, a professor of strategic foresight at New York University Stern School of Business, and the founder of the Future Today Institute, which is a which is a management uh, consulting and uh, research firm. And most of what we do is model long-term futures, opportunity, and risk. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's been an amazing event so far. Yesterday we had a great dinner gala as well. And um, yes, the topic we want to put in the middle, we want to look together, is related to organizations, especially in these times we're living in where um, things like artificial intelligence, big data are providing huge opportunities, but also risks. Yeah? And what does that actually mean For companies, um, maybe also from different sides, like the old ones, the big ones, but also people who are building a new organization. So what is really the job to be done? So before we talk about the job to be done, I think we should talk about the problem that we have. Yeah. And that is that when it comes to artificial intelligence, there is too much uh, fear and optimism. And... My observation is that we've been living with the idea of artificial intelligence for so long, you know, and we've seen such amazing movies and read amazing books, whether it's Space Odyssey 2001 uh, or Westworld, which is a U.S. television series, um, or The Terminator. You know, uh, we have these unbelievable stories that have painted these dystopian pictures of the future. And so I think what's happened is, um, on the one hand, a lot of managers and everyday people are looking for walking, talking robots that are going to come and murder us in our sleep. But first, they're going to take all the jobs, right? <laughs> <laughs> Or, um, on the other hand, there are a lot of people, especially funders and investors, who are making very big promises about artificial intelligence saving us all. And the real truth, of course, is somewhere in the center And so we're in the middle. Um, you know, and most importantly, when we talk about AI, especially as it relates to organizations, we cannot talk in abstraction. We have to get very granular and we have to be specific because if we keep talking about AI as though it's just one thing off on the horizon, um, I think we're going to run into problems down the road. I totally agree because I think uh, we have kind of a picture in our mind, but that seems still quite far away. And uh, a key point is really always in transforming times, like kind of translating it down, what does it mean for you, job to be done. But if we're so far away with our mind, we're not aware of what's already happened. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you think about um, sort of jobs and what jobs and roles are people fulfilling and what, what job does AI really serve uh, us, um, what I would say is the easiest way to think about this is um, artificial intelligence is not one technology. 
it's a sort of general term for a whole bunch of technologies. Mm -hmm. And all of those technologies do different things. But the easiest way to understand it is that um, they do narrow things that humans can do at the same level or, or better. So, you know, something like going through a bunch of pictures and tagging faces. You know, it w yes, a human could do that, um, but a machine can do it way faster and typically with a higher rate of, um, a, a higher correct, co correction um, rate. So that's kind of where we are today, but where we're headed um, is systems that can do more complicated and sophisticated tasks. Mm -hmm that combine different disciplines like recognizing objects and understanding voices. I'll give you a quick example because it's, um, do you edit these podcasts or is this just? Uh, if you need, if you want to. No, I was going to say, um, uh, I've got, there's like awesome audio. Yeah. Um, so there's a company, it's a company, a startup called Lyrebird, mm -hmm. L-Y-R-E-B-I-R-D.com. Okay. And you can upload, um, a corp you can upload uh, samples of your voice. Okay. And then basically you can turn your voice into a keyboard. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which, me which is a way of saying you can literally put words into somebody's mouth. So you can like, you can like or, or maybe another way to think about it is like your voice as a font, as a typeface, okay. right? So you can type out whatever and it will automatically speak in your voice whatever you've typed. Now, there are some practical reasons for that, and you should, as a podcaster, know. Sometimes you're doing an amazing interview with somebody, and, oh, you wish, like, maybe, maybe somebody's walking in and out of the room, and so they're making noise. You want to edit that part out, but now you, I'm gone, or whoever, you know, Alex is gone. Um, so uh, you could just edit that part out, retype what the person said, and put it back in. Wow. Okay. So I can see in your face, I can see your wheels turning. Oh my God, yeah. Right, right, right. So like that's good for a podcaster, but now <laughs> let's think about it for movies. So um uh to to do the dubbing for a movie, like if you're in another market, it's really expensive. You have to hire actors, yeah. you know, um or reading an audio uh, an audio version of a book. Uh -huh. A lot of people now read by listening to their to books. Uh -huh. um, I've written a couple books. My first book, um, I did the recording. Uh -huh. It took a week, every eight hours a day, reading what I wrote. I hated myself by the end of it. I was like, oh, my God, why did I write such a long book? <laughs> okay, but this is something where if there was a database of my voice then a machine could simply translate the text into my voice. Mm -hmm. The whole thing would take a couple of seconds, and we'd be done. So mm -hmm. all of these are very practical, right? Mm -hmm. However, um, you can also, if you have a, a big enough database of somebody's voice, you, know, you, you can also put together things that they've never said. So Donald Trump, president of the United States, is constantly talking to people, on various shows, and he's got lots of tweets. So um, a bunch of people have scraped his voice and put together uh, conversations that he's had that obviously he never had in real life. So the issue is, if you listen to some of this right now, it doesn't sound perfect, because mm -hmm. we're at the early beginnings of this. Mm -hmm. However, most people don't just sit in a perfectly quiet room listening 
with 100% of their attention, right? I mean, we hope they do, but they don't. <laughs> so, so if you, if you hear some of, like, so if you go to Liarbird, they've got some demos. And if you hear some of the demos of Donald Trump, talk, there's, there's one of Donald Trump talking to President Obama, which is crazy. Um, you start to get a sense of what's on the horizon, right? Mm-hmm. And so as with every technology, and especially when it comes to AI, there's always good, you know, it always starts from a good place. There's always really good purposes for it. But as with every technology, somebody is going to take it and twist it and make it bad, you mm-hmm. know, make, make it have bad outcomes. Anyhow, that was a long tangent. But Yeah, you've really started my wheels turning around. <laughs> Amazing. Um, looking towards the direction in terms of what it means, actually. You said, yes, we need to be specific. So yeah. do we need to come to, like, uh, create a context this is an AI for when we talk about it, probably? So we give more uh, a frame, like, uh, in terms of what it delivers to guide people? Or? That's a good question. Um, Again, we're using AI as this kind of catch-all term, and most of the time people are either talking about robots, it's like a shortcut to yeah. talk about robots or automated work. Um, but I think you're right. I think if we had better definitions for, for everyday people, not computer scientists, yeah. right? So that they could have a better understanding of, like, in this case, machine learning can do this, right? Yeah. And um, maybe there needs to be, like, an AI canvas... Because I believe, I mean, anyways, so many buzzwords around, but uh, especially in the context yeah. that you say the extremes like, well, uh, it's the greatest horror or it's uh, the, the biggest thing on earth in order to make it kind of tangible, at least in the mind. Yeah, I mean, most of, you know, most of AI is really, really boring. And, and, and it's invisible. We don't think about it. So yeah. if you've taken on... If you've gotten on a plane, an airplane, and you've flown anywhere, um, the, a lot of what's in the cockpit is AI. Um, I, re- I was in the cockpit of a plane a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. The pilots were really cool, and they let me sit with them. And the GPS <laughs> slash I also begged them to let me sit there. Uh, <laughs> um, they, they were cool. The GPS, um, the, the newer GPS systems are really interesting because they have this, like, um, you know if you go on Google Maps... There's a blue line. Yeah. Okay, well, in this particular airplane, it was a pink line. Okay. Um, and it was, you know, like, so all they kind of have to do is follow the pink line, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but that's all the result of, you know, a lot of that is artificial intelligence. Um, anyhow, but if you've bought a plane ticket, uh, the pricing structure, like how much you pay for your ticket, mm-hmm. is determined using data from your profile. Um, you know, and there were a bunch of decisions made by algorithms that resulted in you being shown a particular price for your air ticket. Um, so there's, there are all of these different use cases, and for the most part, they're all invisible. So nobody has any idea that there are, every day, thousands of automated decisions being made about mm. you, on your behalf, you know, um, to do things like give you a score, give you permissions, deny you permissions, you know, things like that. So... But I agree with you. I think we need to have a... It would be useful for us to have um, everyday terms instead of computer science terms mm-hmm. so, that, so that we could talk about all of this, I think. Yeah, and especially if you relate it to people who are working at a company, then I think, like, um, because it's so mysterious, we need to create 
awareness for kind of a context, yeah. probably. And I also see that, um, I'm not sure if how it's in the States, but in, uh, in German countries, we have that picture in mind, like, they're stealing our jobs, you know? Mm. Which well, is but, but, okay, but stop and think about Germany for a moment, uh, which has such a strong history and culture of engineering. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean... Uh, And even people that I know who work as researchers at universities in artificial intelligence, their orientation is still engineering, yeah. you know, machines. So I could totally understand why in Germany there's a, there's a lot of concern about AI mm -hmm. in work, mm -hmm. um, because a lot of the work has been engineering focused and that, you know, has always required people yep. to design. And now here's the thing. I mean, here's the crazy thing. So... It's not just AI taking the jobs of people from factories. This is about AI systems also designing better strategies, better blueprints, better okay. tools. So it's also like, and in fact, I would say that the white collar jobs are probably going to go away first. Okay. In part because, um, first of all, humans are, human hands are much cheaper than mm -hmm. robots. You know, mm -hmm. um, and uh, some of the finer motor skills for robots are still not there yet. And there's a lot of very like in a big factory where you have um, where you're producing the same thing over and over again. You don't have a lot of variation, but in other cases where you do have variation, that would be very expensive to build mm -hmm. the programs or the robots to you know constantly move. So at this point and for a while, humans are cheaper. Uh, they're more adaptable. Mm -hmm. um, and they have fine motor skills, which means that it's not the blue-collar jobs that are going to go away first. Mm -hmm. In this case, it's the white-collar jobs. It's the cognitive jobs, and Amazon has started to do this. So in warehouses in the United States, the New York Times did a wonderful investigative report on this a couple months ago. Um, the humans who work in warehouses that are surrounded by machines... Um, It used to be that they're called pickers, mm -hmm. and they would see the order, and they would run to the place mm -hmm. and, like, figure out how can they move their arms the fastest and, like, make a choice about, well, I'll pick this one first and that one first, and then I'll put it into the box mm -hmm. and then send it. Well, they figured out that a machine is better, that AI is better at all that cognitive work, what mm -hmm. order to pick what in, right? So basically now the AI systems are doing the thinking work and the humans are acting more like robots. Yeah. Listen, and, and they have to obey what the system is saying to pick in which order, you know, and to do it. I mean, it's... it's I, I just say this because I think, again, if you're not really paying attention and really looking at what the developments are, it's easy for us to fall back on what we've seen. Yeah. It's easy for us to think of Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. and the Terminator, right? Um, It's much harder, and these narratives that we have are so strong now that it's hard for us to believe that the world turned out differently, you know, and yet that's what's happening. Yeah, and I think that kind of old beliefs is, for example, like, okay, they, AI, robots are coming, and then I'm gone. It's more, not, not the thinking... It's a different thinking if you say, okay, how can I use it for and what do I do with my time on my resources? Yeah, um, that's a really good point, too. And, you know, I think the challenge is, I think for a lot of companies, it always comes back to 
finance, yeah. to money, right? So where can we spend the least amount of money and get the most amount of benefit? Um, I think right now, humans still have the upper hand. In a lot of cases, humans are still cheaper mm-hmm. and easier, but that's going to start changing. Um, and there are great efficiencies to be gained in an organization um, and a lot of money to be saved if mm-hmm. we can automate some of the tasks. So I'll give you another example. I think America is famous for a lot of things. You lived in the United States, so mm-hmm. you know we're famous for you know baseball, basketball. Um, we're also famous for lawyers, mm-hmm. I think. And so in a lot of our biggest law firms, um, the, the law firm structure, organizational structure is kind of like a pyramid. So you have all of these people just out of law school who are doing um, very boring work. So at the beginning of a big case, they'll have to do a lot of research. Mm-hmm. And it, they would go through the research, they would read all the research and all the um, interview recordings with a highlighter. They have to go through and look for instances of words and highlight all the words. Which seems like a tremendous waste of brain power for somebody who's just gone through three years of law school. But that's the way they've always done it. So you've got, at the bottom of the pyramid, all of these people who are young, who are doing all of this very repetitive research work. And then, um, and they're paid the lowest, but uh, you've got them, and then you've got middle-level people, and then you have sort of partners at the top. And the way the business model works is... Um, you're charging for all of that time. So if you think of a pyramid and then slice it, um, you're getting everybody's, you're being, they're, they're billing all of, sort of like a combined hourly rate of all those people's times. Okay. You don't need the bottom of that pyramid anymore, right? Because an AI system, machine learning, like you just train it on these, like look for these five keywords and then in a couple seconds, it'll go through thousands of pages of documents and just like, there you go, here's your answer. But the billing model doesn't, the, the financial model doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So a lot of huge law firms in the United States are now really struggling with how do they completely rethink their organization in an age of AI um, because does it, you know, their clients are saying, listen, I don't know why we're spending you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for a couple of 25-year-olds to go through and read all of these things when can't you just use an AI to do it for you, you know? Very fair point of view. Um, related to um, what does it mean for my team, for my organization, um, one of the CIOs in Germany, which was really amazing, he, he was one of the first who moved into cloud right away. Yeah, very first moment, and I remember when he also um, had press uh, conference and so on. So many people said, "Like, why are you doing that? What are you going to do with your people?" And so on. But he moved in straight away. Yeah, he was completely convinced, and he's still like kind of a hero. Yeah, yeah? and he clearly said, "You know what?" Um, yes, we had physical uh, computers related and so on, but everyone who has been with, the, with this company and has some skills and is willing to improve his skills, um, I, I'm happy to use them because I have, will have to build so many individual solutions in the future, so I'm not worried related. Yeah. Do you see the same? 
You mean with cloud computing in general? No, 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 just... no. He related it to cloud computing, but I think we're now moving to more to the level in terms of artificial intelligence also. I mean, you know, that's an interesting example because there's a tension between... There's always been a... If you think about it, there's always been a tension between something physical and yeah, something yeah. virtual. Exactly. And this reminds me of a lot of the big businesses um, that fought against MP3s. So yeah. if you think about in the late 90s or so, mid-90s, um, everybody had CDs and discs and people were still, and some people still used cassette tapes. And then there was LimeWire and Napster and, mm-hmm. you know, and then IsoHunt, all of these places where you could just get MP3s. I remember at the time talking to some big companies, um, one was Sony, and, and these companies say, doing the same thing, saying, there's no business here. People, how, who's going to pay for this? Nobody's, ever, you know, like, people want want physical technology. They mm-hmm. don't want virtual technology. And I think the biggest problem was they couldn't figure out what does the whole ecosystem look like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when we're not talking about physical technology anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took a long time for everybody to sort it out. And I think, uh, you know, it was Apple with the iTunes store that said 99 cents a song that probably revolutionized the way that we listen to music now. And then Spotify came along and said, by the way, uh, everything is in the cloud. So not only is there, I mean, this is kind of the crazy thing. It's not just an MP3, which you buy Mm -hmm. and you own, um, but now you just subscribe and you're not going to own anything and everything is going to be in the cloud and you just, you know, play it. I mean, these are huge changes, all of which, by the way, were aided through through automation. You know, AI has been, you know, in some way has been a part of that entire process, but you're right. Man, it's it's a uh, that's a hard one for organizations to um, to confront because it's it comes back to their cherished beliefs. Exactly. Right, and especially successful managers, they're sometimes afraid to it's, do anything different. It's a total big thing. I mean, it's also when I had the chat with Alex Osterwalder, he also said. And we said, how can we really come to a level not talking about innovation? Like, how can we come to really doing it and establishing it? Yeah. And we both agreed that it's like something you do um, on the green grass normally, something you, which feels like a playground. But especially in times of recession, you need to have it embraced and as a parallel thing in your organization. And that's where they're struggling. Right. And so where I come into all of this is um, before you can do the new thing, uh, you've got to be able to plan for it. So I'm a quantitative futurist. My job, I don't predict the future because you can't. It's <coughs> mathematically impossible. So instead, we build models for risk and opportunity. Um, and the way that we do this is by using data. Um, and we would say, today, we have the most data we're ever going to have. And the further out into the future we go, <coughs> we would say we have less data And therefore, we have more uncertainty. But it doesn't mean we can't think about it, right? So, um, you know, any company today that is... Well, here, my favorite company... The, the, the company that I think does this really well is Nintendo. Mm-hmm. All right. Nobody on the planet would say Nintendo is the biggest gaming company. Tencent's the biggest gaming company. Like, they don't make the most... Like, the coolest games. Um, <coughs> you know, they are relatively small. However, they've been around for 150 years. 
And the reason is because they've always worked, they've always um, worked in the present mm-hmm. on their, their strategy, but they've always thought about, well, how will behavior change in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, how will people want to be entertained in the future? They're always thinking about that, even though there's a lot of uncertainty and they don't know. Yep. But what they're trying to do is make their market. And then once you figure out, if this is where I think we're heading and this is how the whole thing is going to evolve, um, once you have that sense, then you can start doing all of the innovation work. Yep. And in a way, they, the innovation work and the futures work that I do really complement each other because if you, do, if you just innovate without having a sense of what's next, you're probably going to fail, you know. Um, on the other hand, if you only envision what's next but you don't take any action, then you're going to fail. So you kind of have to do both. Exactly. I mean, and that's also related to, like, ethical point of views, yeah? Um, the way you are using your data, you are using AI, and on the other side, um, also, what do you talk about? As a company, what do you stand for? The, the USP or positioning and so on? I think that all comes together as an ecosystem by itself. Yeah, and, um, and here's sort of the thing about this that matters. I, I understand why we, talk, why we use the word ecosystem and platform. Like, I understand that. They're metaphors. Yeah. And metaphors are nice cognitive shortcuts. Mm-hmm. Um, our human brains want to save energy whenever possible. So I understand why we use these terms, but I think they limit us in how we really think through things. Um, so if you think about an ecosystem, <coughs> there's... Uh, organic, there's the organic ecosystem um, that Darwin wrote about, you know, and you've got uh, different species blossoming under different conditions, whatever. But then you have inorganic ecosystems, which you can actually plan for, um, and they can, they can thrive. I would say that in the United States, what you have is a true jungle of technology, right? Mm. You've got uh, an ethics and data and everything else. So you've got a true organic ecosystem And sometimes in organic ecosystems, you wind up with, uh, if I'm going to continue the metaphor, you wind up with um, enormous plants or terrifying monsters or huge bugs, you know. Um, and if you start trying to destroy parts of it, the whole thing collapses, right? On the other hand, if you have a totally planned out ecosystem, you have less, um, <coughs> there's less of a chance that through serendipity, you're going to get really cool new innovations and ideas, right? New bugs, new plants, uh, because everything is under so much control. On the other hand, you can plan it out, and that's China. So if you think of, so, so to come back to data, the challenge is um, China has a very planned out ecosystem. It is going to grow in a particular way, and, and part of that ecosystem means nobody's data is private, Right? In the United States, we've got this wild jungle uh, that's flourishing. Um, and now a whole bunch of people are very concerned about data and ethics and all the rest of it. So they're trying to go in now to, to regulate. You know, I think what's best for everybody in every circumstance is something in the, some kind of a hybrid where, where you say, listen, this is what, and, and ha as this relates to companies, I, most companies are not working on a very boring subject called data governance. Super boring, like not, not exciting. But data governance means um, 
what is your vision for how your customer or your vendor data or whatever, how, mm-hmm. like, how is that going to be used? What are the ethics for how it gets used? How is it going to be stored? Um, if somebody has some great idea, you know, some third party wants to use it, under what circumstances would you be able to, you know, to use that? Eth- so, like, I don't know any companies that are having those kinds of conversations. Most of them are talking about compliance. Yep. So they're only having the conversations so that they stay clear of legal trouble. Mm. Um, but this is one of these areas now where there's an opportunity to have a meaningful conversation and just to do some of the hybrid planning. It doesn't mean you come up with strict laws and regulations. It just means like, hey, we've got a framework. We're developing some norms. We kind of know what we want to do here. And we're going to have to f- be flexible as we move along, as long as our vision for, you know, our, our true thinking around ethics and whatever else, as long as we're staying true to that, we're going to be flexible on the details. Totally agree. And it seem, the same thing applies for gover- governments, too. Yeah. So a lot of these governments, the EU, the U.S., the state, well, less the EU. The EU was very early on privacy um, regulations, but they tend to stay out of things. And then Facebook comes along and does something stupid, which seems to be like every other day. <laughs> or, you know, Google does something stupid, and then everybody gets very upset, and then they try to regulate. But that's a dumb way of doing things. And the first budget that's going to be killed is ethics? <laughs> yeah, totally. That's absolutely right. So here's another one. Every single organization as part of its C-suite should have some kind of chief, chief ethics officer, I think. Um, but ethics always falls into human resources, mm-hmm. you know, and it gets marginalized. It should, if you're an organization that cares a lot about people, then it should be the core part of what you do. Exactly. And then it's also like um, you have a PR department who uh, creates an agenda who's yeah, uh, yeah, totally. from the old world. You know, uh, I think a lot also has to do that you bring together the outside world and the inside world to consistency. Yeah, you're totally right. And that's such a good point on PR because I think a lot of times what happens is people get upset and now here comes the PR department and they have some, oh my God, hum, oh, such a good example. Do you remember, you, I'm sure you know this. Do you remember when um, everybody got really upset about Google's, Google, Google's, um, shucks, private project maven. Mm-hmm. So Google was getting kind of into the, uh, the military space and doing some things. Anyhow, uh, people freaked out. Google appointed a board of, uh, do you remember this? Like, um, it was meant to be like an ethics board. Okay. But then all the people on this board were like, they, it was like the wrong, it was, it was like <laughs> totally the wrong people. And it was clear to everybody that they weren't serious, that this was really just about PR and the whole thing blew up in their face. So, but I mean, you know, like it's, it's a good short term bet for a potential long-term gain. Mm. Um, what I'm seeing happen is companies keep uh, making short-term decisions without ever thinking about the next, like the downstream implications. Absolutely. And they're never, the, the short-term decisions that, are, that result in benefit, they never address all of these other risks. Yeah. So, you know. Whew, quite a lot to do for us. <laughs> so let's wrap it up. Sure. I'll put, again, the question that we had on the table, and let's try to summarize okay. quickly. Um, it is related to companies, organizations, um, who are always transforming, but uh, like the upspeed they're getting related to AI, and, and in terms of like how do we deal with it, Yeah, uh, what is the job to be done? 
Hmm. Companies need to make smarter decisions in the present about artificial intelligence and how it will impact the future. That means prioritizing safety over speed, not just making decisions on a cost basis, but thinking about the broader ecosystem and always thinking about data, how the data will be used and uh, how to use the data so that it's in the best interest of the company, mm -hmm. but also in the society where that company operates. And probably adding to that, the, giving the context of AI, so we're not getting after the mysterious space, like um, oh. giving some context. Yeah. First of all, in, or in terms of creating awareness, what kind of tools mm -hmm. do we have? So the best possible thing any company can do is to help managers and leaders understand very specifically what AI is, what it doesn't, yep. you know, what it doesn't do, what it isn't, and why all of this matters. If a company executive can sit across from their wife or their husband or their neighbor and in like three minutes in a very interesting way explain, like, here's everything you need to know about AI, right, in a conversational way, not using business examples, but just relatable examples, that's a good indication that a company is in a good place, I think. Absolutely, and um, it has to do with what we had at the end, that kind of thinking through outside world, inside world, like you really have to come to create that awareness as well. Right. One of the tools that we use is called the 11 Sources of Change, mm -hmm. and um, anytime I'm working on, I'm, I'm researching the future of anything, um, we always use these 11 Sources of Change, which is where most disruption comes from. So... Any CEO or leader or whatever who's thinking about the future of AI and their company should also think about AI and their company and these 11 sources, things like public health. Mm -hmm. Well, what, what do we see happening in public health and how does that relate back to me? Mm -hmm. You know, and where does AI stand? Public health, wealth distribution, the environment. And the reason for this is because most people never look outside their fields. Yeah. Right? So they wind up thinking really, really narrowly. Absolutely. And then this is where they get disrupted. This is where they say, well, we never, how could we pass, how could anybody have seen Amazon coming? How could anybody, well, the answer is everybody could have seen it if you were looking, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so I think that's especially important for big fundamental technologies like artificial intelligence or quantum computing or blockchain or genomic editing, all of these things. Um, it's important to look at what's happening in adjacent industries, in other fields, because it'll give you some context for how to think about what's happening in your own field. Yeah, I think that kind of transfer really also helps to uh, rethink yourself, which is a very, very key point uh, a lot of people are missing, and I think that's also a pretty good call to action. Actually... That is a really good place to end on, to rethink yourself, because that's right. Rethinking yourself requires um, confronting uncertainty yes. and constantly asking yourself about your own beliefs and, cog and your biases. Um, and if you ask, you know, I would say that deep uncertainty requires deep questions. So the very best thing anybody can do is to start asking a lot of questions. What does this mean? What does this mean to me? How do I think about this? And what should I do? That's a great call to action at the end. Thank you very much, Amy. It was amazing. Thank you. It was a good conversation.